Stu over there, they great friends of ours. They were uh, Rick was actually an associate pastor here at this church because our church, another church, their church merged years back, and I think God orchestrated that for many reasons. But one of them propelled Rick into his life mission. I think it's a kind of a interesting thing how God leads. So we are. This is we're actually doing the blood drive for Team International, and our passion is to partner with Team International and World Team Foundation. And I'd like Rick to kind of share what God is doing through them. And uh, I want us to be connected to what they're doing. And I want us to pray all the time. I want us to give. I want us to partner with them in going and here, there, everywhere. So uh, just tell us what's going on. Share your heart with us and share what God's doing. It's a joy to be here because I know so many of you. And it's also a joy to be here because I don't know so many of you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it was 95 uh, January of 95, when Jesse went full-time with Team International, and then it was July of 95, 2005, I'm sorry, 2005, right, when, uh, when I went uh, full-time from New Community Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, we focus on the unreached peoples of the world, particularly the Buddhist, Muslim, and then the girls who are in sexual slavery. We're talking about the unreached of the unreached. Uh, already this year, I've been in Bangkok, Thailand, and then last week I was in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, because uh, we're developing a, a ministry to go all the way through uh, the Mideast, sending Chinese missionaries, 300 Chinese missionaries, uh, into 14 nations and 75 cities uh, in the Middle East. So I like to see unreached peoples reached with the gospel, and I also like to see Americans reached with the gospel. Amen. So we specialize in strategy and then training for unreached peoples. Well, there are unreached peoples here in America. You all have some friends you just wrote down. And I'd like to suggest to you that if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants you to be a fisher of men. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher. So Monica is on our staff and she's leading the fire team training. Your hand, Monica. She's also leading another team to Thailand this year. And here are seven steps that will lead you through the open door of world evangelization. So I want you to memorize them with me right now, okay? It's very easy to memorize these, Dave. I need you to hold that. Okay, it goes like this. Walk in the Spirit. Okay. Team up. Okay. Build relationships. Tell stories. Heal broken people. Preach the gospel. Set the captives free. Okay, now that's seven chapters of my book. And that is a strategy where we equip God's people to reach lost people. Now you can do that. I want to encourage you. If you're a follower, you're a fisher. The Bible says if any man or woman is a new creation then God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. And so don't think that the friends whose names you just wrote down are going to be reached on Sunday morning Easter. We hope they will. But God wants you to lead people to Christ. Right. That should be the norm for a Christian. And I love to train you in that. And Monica will train you in that. She's been through this training several times. In fact, how many of you have been to Thailand with me or have, have been involved in our ministry? I'm just curious... Um, Chris is not here, but he's been to Thailand with us. And Kurt's back People there. Back, Sam's yeah. back there. And, uh, and so Dave has been to Thailand. And, and I believe that 
by focusing on the Great Commission, by obeying Jesus' instructions, particularly Luke chapter 10, that's what the seven steps were all about, then you step into the action. You step into the anointing. You step into the fire. And unless you go into the fire, I mean, Acts 1.8 is all about you will receive this dynamic. You will receive power. You will receive the anointing as you are a witness. So if you're not a witness, you won't have much of the action. You won't have much of the fire. You won't have much of the anointing. But if you're willing to go as Jesus went, then that's where your Christianity really kicks in. And so it's tough to reach girls that are sexual slaves. My wife, Sue, is here, and she was the heartbeat behind our foundation to reach girls in sexual slavery. I mean, they are the hidden of the hidden. They are the lost of the lost, but we can reach them. There are things that we can do to reach lost people, things that you can do to reach those who don't know Christ. And I'd say, let's do it together. I want to be your servant and equip you to be very effective in evangelism. But you've got to be willing to do it. It's right clear in the Bible. It is the theme of the Bible. Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. At the end of his life, he said, here's the great commission. Go make disciples of all nations. It's the heartbeat of our God to rescue people. And when you participate in that, when you make time, when you stretch yourself, and there is a cost. I'm still jet-lagged from going to Bishkek. I woke up at 4.45 this morning and didn't want to wake up at 4.45. (laughs) There's a cost, but pay the price. Pay the price to reach out and effectively lead people to Christ. And once you find a receptive person, you just park with them. You just stay with them. You lead them. Teach them the word. Answer their questions. Pray for them. But you know, Dave, if every single member of your church just began to lead one or two or three people to Christ every year. And disciple them. And disciple them and raise them up. You were looking for the 30, 60, 100-fold disciple. Amen. Others get choked. All right, let them choke down. Satan snatches a seed from some. Okay, we're sorry to see that. But if you learn how to find a receptive person that in his lifetime will, read, will lead 30 or 60 or 100 fold to Christ, that's fruit. And Jesus wants that kind of fruit from Amen. your life. Amen. Uh, you probably don't want me to preach all morning long. So. That's, good. that's a good word. That's good, huh? Amen. 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 So this is why one of the reasons we partner with, with Rick and what they're doing isn't just you know, reaching people in Thailand, but empowering other people to reach yes. their equippers and mobilizers. For us here uh, with Fire Team, you know, going to Thailand and all that kind of stuff. So there's projects that you can go on their website, Team International, just Google it, and World Team Foundation, Google it, and you can see the projects that as we give financially, it's fueling those projects, Man. projects that Thank are you. empowering other organizations. These are networkers. I love that. They're just not, not like lone rangers. And so we're all trying to partner together. We with them, them with other organizations, but obviously not just financially, but with prayers and with going with them. You can help with uh, ending human trafficking even by just Man. volunteering as an intern with either one of the organizations even now here in the States. I mean, so there's so many ways. I know Monica, that's really what Monica does. Uh, a lot. She's right here doing it right here, and then she'll go to Thailand as well. And so uh, we're all on mission with Jesus. Amen? Amen. This is just one of our partners. It's really probably our primary partner organization 
these two organizations, that are the primary organizations that we partner with, as we focus on Thailand, which is less than 1% Buddhist, I'm sorry, less than 1% Christian, mostly Buddhist, and, uh, and that, that we want to see that unreached group, about 77 na- people groups represented in Thailand, at least, unreached groups, and that unreached nation come to Jesus. That's the Man. cry of our heart, revival yes. and transformation in Thailand. And what I believe, personally, I'm convinced we'll see it in our generation. It's already Man. stirring. We've seen a lot yes. of fruit in the last number of years, Amen. more than the last dec- few decades before. Amen? Yes. Amen. Yes. All right. Let's so pray. This, this, go for it. Oh, here. Go for it. This booklet will help lead you there. Monica can get you there, but Dave, I want to give it to you as a gift. But I literally give it to the whole church. Amen. Equipping to be effective in the Thank harvest. Thank you, sir. Amen. I received that. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. All right. Thank you, Greg. All right. All right. Let's, uh, thank you, sir. Let's pray. Open, uh, how about this? Do this. Open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. It's near the end of the Bible. And let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. So, Father, thank you for the word that you just gave us through Rick, that we are, are reconciled to you by the blood, and we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. One in the same thing. One calling to receive salvation and to give it away. Lord, we, we say amen to that right now, Lord. We say yes to your invitation to partner with you. And we ask you, Father, right now, that you would speak to us. I'm asking, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come upon our hearts, that you would speak to us from your word today. But we don't just want to do a Bible study. We want you to speak. So, Father, speak through me by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you open your heart to the Lord? Amen. You ready to receive? All right, so we're on this journey into the heart of God This series we've been doing is called The Ravished Heart of God. It's more than just a nice little sermon series. It is a journey as we press into the heart of God. We're convinced that the love of God, that God's love for you, God's desire for you will heal your heart, transform your heart, heal your heart, and cause you to love Him and love others with His love. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have fear just fall off of your life? Remember, we've been learning this, that perfect love drives out fear that where there's a root where there's a fruit problem there's a root problem right and we've been finding that the love of god is the root cure to our root problems it will cause fear to drive out of your life guaranteed you get flooded with the love of god and your heart will be transformed and you'll find you're not afraid you're not afraid of what people think of you whether in evangelism which is what we're going to mostly talk about today but also in relationships you won't need to control people or be controlled because you'll be confident in his love and your value in him, etc., etc. So, Second Peter chapter 3, um, just dive right into this. But we're going to talk about, we're just going to kind of do a, just going to dive right off of what Rick talked about it. Really press into that. We're going to start in verse 1 of, uh, of first, Second Peter 3, and I'm going to read for a number of verses here. So just stick with me. If you don't have a Bible, just check it out up there on the screen. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of, the Lord, of our Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Whew, that's some powerful stuff right there. See, the Holy Spirit is reminding believers of God's story. Peter said at the very beginning, be mindful of this, remember this. And he's reminding us of the promise of Jesus' coming. That he promised, remember in John chapter 14, I'm going away, I'm preparing a place for you, I will come. Over and over again, just like he promised to come the first time and die, he has promised to come the second time and establish his kingdom on earth, a new heaven and a new earth, and restore all things. Because when Jesus comes and he is Lord, he will restore and make everything right. Amen? And Peter is reminding the church, remember that he is coming. He has promised it. It is sure. He cannot lie. But he's saying, remember that there is going to be people. And already in the day of Peter, there were people like this. But how much more nowadays are there people? Peter calls them scoffers. I call them materialists. Who tell us a different story than the story of God. He says that the world was created by God's word. That God literally spoke the world into existence. And that the world was created by something unseen, the voice of God. Not by the Big Bang, not by evolution, not by Mother Nature, not by accidental processes, but by the very voice of God. That God's word made everything and created it. See, we're told a story all the time. Our whole life, if I tell you a million times, there's aliens, there's aliens, there's aliens, there's aliens, you begin to start to believe that. If I tell you, yeah, the world's oh yeah, 13.7 billion years old, 13.7 billion years old, the universe. You start to believe that, because I say it to you like it's fact. But it's based upon tons of assumptions. They tell us one story, God tells us another. And Peter's reminding us, believe what God says. And what we've been focusing on in this series, this journey into God's heart, isn't necessarily what happened. We know the world was created by God. We know that Jesus died and rose again. We know that he's going to come back. Most of us wouldn't even question that. What we've been learning in this last number of weeks is why. That it wasn't an accident. And two weeks ago, if you remember, and if you didn't catch that message, you probably need to, 
I showed you from Matthew 24 why Jesus hasn't come back yet. I showed you right from the word of God that there's a reason he hasn't come back yet. For 2,000 years, he's been waiting patiently. And if you didn't believe me from Matthew 24, 2 Peter chapter 3 is definitively absolutely clear why he still is waiting patiently. And what we learned is that he created the world not because he has any needs, but because he has wants. Because God desires human beings. He wants a relationship with us. He loves us and he created us out of this desire for oneness and intimacy with human beings. And it's the only reason why Jesus died. It's what motivated him to the cross. That God would become a human being. Word become flesh. And bear my sin, your sin, on the cross. And why did he do it? For the joy set before him. He died because of the desire in his heart for you, because he loves you, because he loves me, because he loves the nations. And the reason he created is the same reason he died. And the same reason he died is the same reason he's coming back. What I showed you from Matthew 24, is it said, simply said this in Matthew 24, then the end... <clears throat> so I, oh, sometimes I get stumped on that. He says, this gospel preached to all nations and then... The end will come. Very clear that not until the gospel has been preached to all nations. See, God the Father in Psalm 2 promised Jesus the nations. Said, the Father said to the Son, you ask me for the nations as your inheritance, I will give them to you. And I always ask people, do you think that the Father would lie? Do you think that Jesus will ask in faith and get what he prayed for? Do you think that Jesus will not get his prayer answered? This is Jesus, right? And in Revelation chapter 7, we have a clear prophetic picture that before the throne of God will be a countless multitude of every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And if you do a word study of those words, you find out that tribe is simply just a small group of people associated by biological descent. It's actually a quite a small group of people, like the, tribe of, like the 12 tribes of Israel. Every language, every dialect. Do you know how many thousands of dialects there are on the earth? Every ethnos, the, the word nation means people, group. See, in, 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 in when, when, this, when the Revelation 7 and all that other stuff, when Jesus said the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, to the nations, well, they lived in the Roman Empire. Jesus was not talking about the Roman Empire. He was talking about the nations that were gathered in the Roman Empire. Empire, and of course, those who are outside of the Roman Empire. You might have China, which is an empire, but you have thousands of people groups in China. You might have Thailand, but you have 77 plus people groups in that nation. You might have America, but how many nations have gathered just in Los Angeles? Almost the whole world. And Jesus is not coming back until he gets the desire of his heart. The very reason he died. So many times Christians have in their mindset... Some random concept of sovereignty, which is based on humanistic philosophy and not on the word of God. So many times we have this concept of as if God is being directed or controlled by numerology or date setting or something like that. Instead of the God who is sovereign, who works everything out in conformity to the purpose of his will, is directing human history based upon what he desires to do. He created because he desires. He died because he desires. He is coming back to get the fulfillment of his desire. The nations. 
People. People that he loves, that he died for. <clears throat> and you'll see here that we are being told in verse 8 not to forget this. Not to forget that God's story is what I just told you. Don't think that the world, just universe has been going on and on and on and it'll just go on and on and on for billions more years. Don't think that the world will end because of human disease or nuclear bombs or God's just going to be like, oh no, it's getting so bad, I better just swoop in and save people. Don't believe those things, but believe the story of God's word that we're seeing as Jesus has told us exactly how human history will run. And Peter is telling us, don't forget with the Lord one day is a th- as a thousand years and a thousand, day, a thousand years is as one day. And please do not use this as a mathematical formula. It's so ridiculous. I see people, oh, well, Dave, you know, the Bible says that the day is like a thousand years. So you never know. Maybe it took a thousand, couple thousand years to create the world and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not exa- at all what he's saying. He's not talking about a mathematical formula. If you were to do that, a thousand years is like one day to God too. Day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. He's not trying to say there's a mathematical formula. He's saying God's outside of time, living in eternity. If it's a long time, it's like a short time. If it's a short time, it's like a long time to God. That's what he's saying. There's no mathematical formula going on here. He's saying that God is absolutely eternal. Then he says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise in verse 9, meaning God's not lazy. God's not sitting around doing nothing. God's not like, ah, yeah, well, that's pretty. Ooh, ooh, that's bad. Oh, well, I'm busy, you know? I'm so tired. God's not lethargic, weary, depressed. He's not, he's not frustrated, angry, impatient like we get. He's not sitting around lazy, looking at people dying, looking at people suffering. No, God's on the move. He's working hard. He's burning with zeal, passionate commitment to humanity. And he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. The same thing in your life, by the way. Maybe some promise you're believing God for and you're wondering why it hasn't happened yet. God's not lazy. But it says, but God is long-suffering toward us. He's full of patience, He's patiently, full of zeal, passionately, stubbornly committed to the nations, and he's patiently waiting to get those. And it tells us right here in verse 9 why he hasn't come back yet. It's the same thing that we saw in Matthew 24, verse 14. It says right here, He's patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that. What does the word that mean? Well, you were supposed to insert the verb. He is willing, right? And the word willing is simply the word that is used for the will of God. He wills that no one die, but all come to salvation, that all would repent. Because repentance is the means by which we would enter into that forgiveness. So that it says, but he is willing, you'd have to insert that, he is willing that all should come to repentance. How many? All. And we know from the other verses that all means he wants all people. He wants every person saved. But we know that there will be at least... People from every representative people group, tribe, language, ethnos, people. This is the reason he hasn't come back yet. Because he is so patient, because he is loving, 
And he has been waiting for this to happen. And so Peter is reminding us, don't be deceived by materialism. Don't be deceived by consumerism. Don't be deceived by scoffers who try to question God's promise, question God's faithfulness, question God's love. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Don't get off track as a Christian. But remember, God created the world by the word of God. He will end this thing. He, God will, not like some nuclear bomb. God, at one point, when he gets, I don't know, when the quota of his heart is filled, you know, when, when he gets what he desired, it will be done. Then the end will come. And there will come a point in which this world will burn with fire. It will be destroyed. This realm, and he will make a new heaven and earth. Just like we, who have put our trust in Jesus, our physical bodies will die, and we will receive a glorified body. I mean, if we're still here on earth, the Bible says like a twinkling in an eye. Boom, your physical body will be turned into a glorified body. Jesus will come and reign on earth, new heaven and new earth, no sickness, no dying, no pain, no injustice, and we as God's people will get a glorified body and reign with Jesus. That's some good stuff, amen? This is exactly what will happen for those who trust in, in him. And this is what Peter is reminding us, telling us to remember. And it says in verse 10, that this will come, this day will come as a thief in the night. Because we don't know. We don't know when those people groups will come in. Could it happen in our generation? Amen. You know, they estimate tens of thousands of people groups that are still unreached. You can go to Joshua Project and check that out. It's good research. But to be honest, no matter how much scientific study we do, we don't know. We don't know how Jesus defines people groups. They're doing a good job of doing it. And we don't know how many necessarily are reached or what it means for them to be reached. Or We don't know at all. We can guess, oh, well, I guess if one person from each one, I mean, yeah, that's fine. You can guess and we can say that. And, and I like the Joshua Project because what they're trying to do is they're trying to give us a concept to, to run on. They're trying to tell us there's about tens, you know, a couple, ten, couple or, or uh, 20, maybe 30 people groups that we need to reach and they're identifying them and we know who they are and where they are and we need to go after them. And praise God for organizations like that that would focus us to help us to reach those unreached people groups. But the reality is we don't know. We don't know when the quota of his heart, if you will, is filled. Happen at any moment. My generation, our kids' generation, we don't know. And so we have to be always expecting and longing, waiting. He come as a thief in the night. But look at what he says as our response to this reality. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, referring to, of course, the the, 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 the removal of this world and the establishment and the restoration of the new one. What manner of persons ought you to be? It's kind of like a question and then the answer comes immediately after that. How, sh- how then shall we live? What kind of people should we be if this, if this life is only just for a moment and we're being invited into eternity? How shall we respond if the whole world and all of human history is being directed by this sovereign God's will who desires the nations to be saved. How then shall we live? It calls forth a response in our own hearts. And the answer is, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? In holiness, in godliness, looking for, hastening the coming it's so interesting because the word looking for just means to wait. You could, you could translate it expecting and waiting. 
and, 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 and longing for. But it really just means to wait like you're on the front porch waiting for, for the car to come around the bend. And you're longing and you're expecting it to ca- happen, but you're just waiting. And there's a sense in which we are waiting. There's a sense in which w- there's a contentment. There's a trusting of the Lord. There's a, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. I'm waiting patiently, and just like he's patient. And it's interesting that, 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 that Peter would tell us, wait, look for it. But you know the word hasten is the exact opposite of wait. The word hasten means to hurry up, right? It's an old school word that we used, that people used to use, make haste, right? Make haste to go to the grocery store, you know? Make haste to get me a glass of water, please, you know? Make haste, make haste, right? Or so-and-so hastened to get this, or hastened to do that, right? They hurried up. It means to do something with eagerness and excitement, but to do it quickly, to do it fast. But you know what's interesting is because he doesn't say hasten to go somewhere. He doesn't say it like a past tense thing, like we're, we hastened. It's a command. So how do you turn a word like hasten into a command? What does it literally mean? It means hurry up. It means to hurry something. But you're not hurrying to go to the store, for example. This is, that's different. No, he says hurry or hasten the day of God. Wait, you, I, we can cause the day of the Lord to hurry up? Yes. Literally, that's exactly what Peter is saying. He is literally, the the translators translate it, speed up the day of the Lord. Rather than hurrying to go to the grocery store, it'd be like you causing the grocery store to come to you. You and I are active participants. We have an active role, and I would argue you and I are the variable to the equation. God's desire is not waffling and changing. God's plan is set. See, I'll tell you, people who have a skewed humanistic philosophical view of God's sovereignty hate this verse and verses like it. Like, oh, we can't hasten it. Oh, I mean, you know, it's God's sovereignty, you know. And that is a philosophical understanding rather than the biblical understanding of God's sovereignty that has cre- where God has created the world and has invited human beings to partner with Him. We are really partners. We are really part of it. I'm not diminishing the sovereignty of God. Praise God, I think I'm exalting it. God in His sovereignty has invited you and I and Jesus has delegated to us the task of partnering with Him to bring the gospel to the nations that people would be saved. And if you noticed in verse 9, He said, who is He patient with? Who is He patient with in verse 9? Did I say the right verse? Yeah, I did. Verse 9. But He is long-suffering toward you. The translators either choose you or us. He's not, he's not being patient with the lost people. Yeah, I know, those lost people are so stubborn. Oh, yeah, you know, they don't believe in Jesus, you know. All those Buddhists over there in Thailand. He's not patient with the lost. I mean, he is patient with the lost, too. But <laughs> that didn't come out right. 
Take that off the tape, right? Look at what it says in verse 9. Look at what it says. It's all over the scriptures. You're the variable. I'm the variable. You want to know why it's taken 2,000 years for Jesus to come back? I'm pretty sure I have the answer. It's because the church hasn't gotten their act together. We are the variable in the sovereign will of God. Praise God. Hallelujah. It's the church that historically gets distracted on things that are not important. You know, it started about 50 days after Jesus rose from the grave. Remember when Jesus, he's about to ascend into heaven? He's taught the disciples all about the kingdom of God. He has trained them for three years. He's poured into them for 50 days as the resurrected Christ. He's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to equip the church to reach the nations. And the, guy, and the disciples go, um, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That'd be like us saying, When are you coming back? Is it going to be really soon? Right? I mean, come on. I've been with you for three stinking years. I've told you guys very clearly, I'm going away for a long time. You need to steward what I give you. You know, the talents thing, you know. Come on, guys. Right? And they're like, is it going to happen like really soon? Haven't we gone over this? Remember, guys, Matthew 24. I know it hasn't been written yet, but I did talk to you guys about it. No, I mean, come on, right? Jesus looks at the disciple who asked him, Jesus, is, are you going to do it now? And he goes, it is not for you to know. So why do we keep asking the question? <laughs> We're just like these guys. Jesus, is it going to happen now? I love you. I'm very patient. Long-suffering here. It's not for you to know. Then he said, as Rick said, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why? Because until it goes to the end, he's not coming back. You know what he's saying? Don't worry about it. Do your job. We get so distracted with our own worries, our own finances, our own problems. We get so worried about the signs of the times. Which again, I love the signs thing and when's the rapture going to happen? Wonderful, I've studied all that kind of stuff. But my point is, when we focus there and not on the lost, you know what I'm saying? I really want Jesus to come back. Well then reach some people for Jesus. You want to make heaven come quicker? You want the second coming to come quicker? You want to get to heaven sooner? Get to work! Amen? I mean, really, that's a good motivation. Amen? He is literally saying, speed up the coming of the Lord. Speed it up. Hurry it up. Make it come forth. How do you do that? Intercession. Evangelism. Simple. Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations, all people groups. We do what he said. And we get so distracted on other things. See, this, this gospel, it is such a personal thing, isn't it? It is such a personal thing. You walk into a room. My wife walks into a room, sees some flowers. Oh, those are nice. 
Nice flowers. That's really cool. I wonder who those are for. They're for you. <gasps> oh, that's so sweet, right? You, you walk into a room and you see something, you get excited. Yay, that's neat. Right? Right, Rob walks into the room, sees an iPad. Hey, that's pretty cool. Rob, I got it for you. Dude, right? See, the first response is, that's cool. Somebody's going to be blessed, right? That's cool for somebody. And you're glad for them. Or maybe you're jealous, you know, depending on what's going on inside your own heart. But what happens when it's for you? Oh, man, you're so excited. You're thankful, right? See, so many of us, we hear the gospel. We hear about God's love, his ravished heart. We hear how he feels about us, and we miss the point. Well, that's really cool. God wanted to heal somebody today. He wants to heal you. Well, it's really cool. God loves people. See, what we've been learning is, not, is, is, is that God's love is not some generic, vague love. For God so loved the world. He, just, he loved the continents, you know, or something like that. No. For God so loved the world means that every single human being that he created, he loves, died for, and is coming back for. And he doesn't want any single human being to die. Right? And so the gospel is absolutely personal. You are his treasure. You are the desire of his heart. You are the joy set before him. You are the lost coin. You are the lost sheep. You are the lost son or daughter. And he has found you. If you put your trust in Jesus, he has found you. You are his. He who has satisfied his heart. He's filled with joy. Oh, he's so excited that you're his. It's time for the church to let the gospel become personal. I mean, many of us, oh, I know I'm saved, you know, God loves me. But right, like it's not really deep in us. You walk into the room and go, oh, that's nice, flowers. God got somebody flowers. He got you flowers. He got you the iPad. He got you salvation with all of the benefits, eternal life, and and all the inheritance that Jesus paid for. All the promises of God for you. The gospel needs to be personalized. And we talked about this last week, that until you are awakened by the love of God, you're not going to want holiness, godliness, and you're not going to be longing for His coming. That's why we're so distracted by half-hearted things, right? We've been talking about this, that we as human beings, we're just half-hearted, fooling around with sex and drink, and when infinite pleasure is offered to us. It's because your hearts have not been awakened by the love of God. Those things are like, worthless if your heart is awakened by the love of God. It needs to be personalized. You love me. You died for me. You desire me. And when you encounter God's love, your heart will awaken and you will freely, willingly give yourself wholly to Him. You'll say, oh, you love me. I want to love you. You love me. I want to be like you. I want to be like you. I want to live for you. It will awaken your heart, right? Just like we said, you can't force a rose to open. That's legalism and religion. You'll break the flower open. But a rose will open freely to sun, to rain, right? That's what we need. But the gospel is not just personal to you and me. It's got to become personal to the church. I'm convinced if the church would understand God's love for us, that we would naturally just overflow in giving it to other people. I've seen this as as I've discipled people. 
just showing them God's love and who they are in Christ, the confidence and the boldness comes pouring out of them, especially through like something like Operation Saul Lives, our discipleship program, where you just watch people flood their hearts intentionally with the word of God, and they just start sharing the gospel, and we didn't even teach them how. We didn't tell them they should. They're just like, I don't know what happened. It just whoop, came out of my mouth. Why? Because you were flooding your heart with the word of God, and with his promises, because you were so convinced of his goodness and the truth of the gospel for you, you couldn't help but tell other people. But what we need is not just that we go, oh, you love me. But we need the gospel to become personalized. And then we begin to realize. We begin to realize this. Let me, let me give you another illustration. I'm driving down the street. I see a van on the side of the road. I think, there's a van on the side of the road. Maybe it's broken down. And as I'm driving by, all of a sudden I see my wife and kids on the side of the road. What am I going to do? I'm going to stop, right? Why? Because they're my family. Yeah? Now let's say I'm driving by the side, I'm driving by and I just see some random family. You think I'm going to stop? Most likely not. I'm going to keep on driving. Right? How many kids right now need transplants? Liver transplants? How many of us are rushing down to the medical place to just, oh, here, take my kidney, or whatever? How many of us? There's tons of people who need transplants. Are you motivated? Hey, what happens if one of my kids needs a kidney? Shoot, one of mine's not even all that good. Have the other one, you know? <laughs> right? Am I right or not? How many of you would give an organ for your children? For those of you kids? Right? Hey, there's all this need out there, and we're like, that stinks. You're driving, by down the, you're driving down the road, and you see some random person on the side of the road fixing their tire. Eh, looks like they're all right. They got a cell phone. You keep on going, right? But what happens when you turn and it's your wife? What happens when it's your friend? What happens when your kid comes to you and says, yeah, my kidneys are failing. Would you give me one? You would do it, wouldn't you? Why? Because it's personal. Amen? Because it became personal. This is personal. Do you understand that the one who loves you, you're the lost coin. And he has found you. Do you realize there are millions of other lost coins that he wants just as much as he wants you. And when you realize how much he loves you, when it becomes personal, you love me that much, you automatically, you automatically realize, oh my goodness, you feel this way for everyone. See, the, the lack of our desire and urgency for the gospel, for the nations, is because we haven't been impacted ourselves. But what I'm saying is, it's got to become personal. Every single person Every language, every color of skin, every ethnicity, every human being is the treasure of his heart, the apple of his eye, the desire, the one for which they die. You're walking down the street and you see a human being. He died for them. He loves them. Evangelism is, evangelism is not about, con oh, I got to do this, you know. Evangelism is not about like, you know, it's about getting the desire of his heart. It's got to become personal. Just like a bride begins to want what her, what her husband wants. Oh, you like to do that? I want to do that. I mean, I'm sure I've known, I've known wives. 
they would have never rock climbed or done anything crazy like that or scuba diving. Maybe some would. Then they meet some dude who likes scuba diving. I'll go scuba diving. You know what I mean? Just like a bride would say, oh, I want what you want. I'll go where you go. So the, the church needs their heart awakened to their bridegroom, to Jesus, our Lord. Just like a servant would say, I want what my master wants. So our hearts need to be awakened to what our master wants. And it's got to become personal. You love them like you love me. You desire them like you desire me. Think about it. They're not just random individuals, are they? Are they not our family? Isn't every single human being my brother, my sister? Aren't they every single human being is the son or the daughter of God who is lost? And they are my brother and sister and they are lost? Remember the prodigal son? How there were two lost sons? The one went into sin and the other into religion. And remember that second son, the older brother, didn't want to go out to the, to the I don't know, yeah, welcoming that sinner back home. And he wouldn't go to his he wouldn't go to his brother. So often we as a church are like that, aren't we? But we need to be different older brothers, right? I've been found. And we need to be right there with the Father, praying, crying out, desiring. <clears throat> this has to become personal. I remember, um, let me show you a video clip here. Do you remember the movie Schindler's List? Oscar Schindler. Oh, man. Nazi womanizer, chain smoker, greedy capitalist. Really, that's what he was. He, he was making a profit off of the war. And the movie shows the tragedies of war. If you don't like, you know, Holocaust type stuff, don't watch the movie. It is R-rated. But they, the movie shows the tragedies and shows Oscar Schindler probably in a very real light as someone very selfish, He looked at Jewish people being wronged and was cold to them. But yet, something in him was stirred, wasn't it? These are human beings. See, on one hand, they began as objects to him. But something was stirring inside of him that said, this isn't right. And the story goes, as most of you know, this is a true story, that Oscar Schindler purchased Jewish people saving them from death. Literally, they were on their way to Auschwitz to be killed. And he purchased them, oftentimes not just purchasing them for his factory. And what happened was he, he would continue to make money, but they worked for him, and then their wages never really went to them. So, I mean, they were like slaves, but they would have died in Auschwitz had he not purchased them. And he had to pray to pay tremendous amounts of bribes to the SS officers to get them. At one point, women were sent to Auschwitz and they, and they could have died, but he actually went and rescued them because he had purchased them. And yet at the end of his life, I want to see, I love this scene, which shows something going on inside of him that I think needs to go on inside of us. All right. That's all right. This is one of the most, I think, heart-rending scenes is this man... The war's over. They're giving him a letter to say, hey, this is a letter that says we, you're a good guy. You know, they shouldn't throw you in prison or whatever. And um, he says thank you. He's kind of very meek about it. And uh, 
they give him a ring that was made from guy's dental work, gold ring. Go for it, man. Hey, hey, it's all good. Here we go. We've written a letter trying to explain things in case you were captured. Every worker has signed it. people and the pointlessness of all of his possessions. See, Jesus in Mark chapter 8 said this, unless you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you lose it all. He actually goes on to explain that the one who has lost it all for my sake and the gospel. We'll receive a hundredfold in this life and even more in the age to come. It's tremendous blessings, promised blessings. And yet he didn't say, he who loses his life for me only. I mean, man, when you encounter the love of God and you realize, oh, you're, oh I love you. I, I want to love you. I want to worship you. I want to be with you. I want to become like you. I, I love you, Jesus. And you lose your life for Jesus. And you say, man, I'm going to live for Jesus. But he says, when you lose your life for me and the gospel, you lose your life. You say everything else. rubbish compared to this knowing him yes holiness yes but also the cause that our master and our savior is committed to and he says it's only that person who will find life so i i I wonder so often you know we get so distracted i've said this before you know financial hard times come and the first thing to go is giving I wonder why. I wonder if it's simply because we don't really believe the story of God. Because we don't really desire what He desires. And that's just one little thing of so many that we would get so distracted by the things going on in my life that we don't realize that the very invitation to even abundance, hey, I'm down with that. 
Receive abundance from the Lord. And yet people, I don't know why I'm still struggling. But have you given your life to Jesus and the gospel? See, this is what the Lord is saying all throughout the gospels, but especially here in 2 Peter 3. Look for and hasten the coming of the Lord. Hurry it up by making disciples of other people, by praying. Simple, simple. This is really what I think the Lord is saying. See, especially to our church, by the way, because this is not just a general word. This is a prophetic word. I'm saying, thus says the Lord. The Lord is saying, I am proud of you. New community, I love you. And I have seen you grow in your desire to reach people. I've seen the fruit in this church. Even last Sunday, a young man came to Jesus. The, the Lord would say to us, I am proud of you. Look at the fruit that I'm, I'm bringing. Might not be a lot, but the Lord says, there is fruit. But the, what the Lord is saying, this word today is something that's not just like a nice little thing you tack on to the next, to a side of your life, like a little ornament. He's dealing with this morning the very core of our life, the very core of how we spend time, money, the very core of our motivations and our desires. What am I living for? What am I living for? And the Lord cares about things you're going through, but eternity is so much more important. And the Lord is saying, come to me. Look into my heart. Let me show you my love. Let me show you my desires. And the Lord is saying, if you would look into my heart and you would see the desire of my heart, I would ruin you and ravish you for, for others. I would reorder your life. This is not a message of like, you've got to make it happen. This is a message where the Lord is saying, come. Let me show you how I feel. And I will literally reorder your whole life around this. Jesus and the gospel. And here's what the Lord would say. You, when you desire what I desire, you will do what I do. How do you personalize this? Meditation is personalization. You press into the Lord and you flood your heart with the word of God until for your life and for others it becomes personal. You flood your heart through thankfulness and worship and intercession and prayer until you know you love me and you love others. And your heart is moved by what, it's, what, it, what moves his heart, moves your heart, that you desire what he desires. Meditation is personalization. It causes the truth and the reality of God's word to become our reality. Rather than being distracted or deceived by the other stories and the other things that are going around, we see this is what God says in his word. And we let that change us and transform into his love. Take those names that we have written down and pray for them and ask God for opportunities. Give your life away. Amen? Owen, oh, just lead us in, in, in brief response. <clears throat> Probably just a corporate intercession. Go ahead, yeah. Okay. Our worship team, as we uh, close, feel free to come up. And I want you to all pull out the little card that we filled out earlier with a few names on it that says Easter, April 8th on it, but not specifically just for that day. But I want to think about which people 
we can develop that heart for. Um, I put down on my card, I put down a family of neighbors that live in the apartment complex I live in. I put in some family members of mine, and I put in uh, my boss. I'm going to pray for those people. And I... I realize that I need more of God's heart, specifically for my neighbors, that um, God's given me a heart for them, but I want more of a heart for them. It's a, it's a family with young kids, single mom, and uh, the first day I moved in, I heard uh, things I shouldn't have heard, <laughs> and um, my heart just began to go out towards them, but um, I want my heart to go out to them more. Um, the ways that I care for them and the ways that I try to show them love um, is not only by in- inviting them to church, but by uh, riding bikes with the kids, by um, letting the kids come and run errands with me, go shopping with them, celebrate their birthdays, things like that. I'm not only wanting to um, pray for them and pray with them, but I'm wanting to build that relationship with them. I'm wanting to show them that I care and not just um, care on my own, if that makes any sense. So um, as you have your card there, what I'm going to have us do is I'm going to have us get into little groups of um, just uh, probably three or four. And you're just going to say like maybe a 30 second, one minute prayer. If you want to even read that prayer in your little groups, that's fine. uh, If you want to read that, because I want us to develop God's heart, his compassion, just like Dave's talking about. I want us to be um, sensing what God is sensing for them, that, that our hearts would really burn for the lost. And um, you could also add Thailand to that list. You could also add Team International. You could add um, a nation, if you want to pray for Syria, 8,000 people already uh, killed by the government. Um, that we would be really burning for the loss, that we would really care like he cares. And to be honest with you, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pray for this. Um, I need to learn. I need to feel what God feels. I need God's heart for the, for the loss as well. So we're just going to get into groups just really quick. Um, just go ahead and partner with three or four people around you. Grab your list, and um, I'll let you pray for the people on your list, and everybody else will just kind of partner with you. So let's stand up. Get into a little group.